Well, again, you would uh, take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we will today be looking at verses 7 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working together, making, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant, we pray that what, as we work our way through this text that we would understand it and that we would be able to apply it and that your name is glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been given a gift by His grace. Over the years, um, I've had friends who were just really good at a variety of things. Uh, I have one friend in particular who um, had a really sharp mind. Uh, He could play about every sport imaginable, and he could sing and play piano to boot. He was just good at everything. I would compare myself to him and think... Man, I just don't really have much to offer. This guy is just, everything he does is so good. And, well, I'm, I'm not good at lots of things. Perhaps you've experienced things like this. So what is the gift Christ has given to you? Most of us know the things that we're good at or the things that we enjoy. Perhaps most of us don't see any spiritual value in these things. But these are gifts that were given not only for you, but are given for the good of the body. They're given for the good of the church. And we know this because of the unity of the church. This has actually been the theme we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians. 
You and I are united to one another on account of the fact that we have the same Lord. We have the same Spirit. We have the same hope. We've been baptized with the same baptism. And there is one church of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at our text today, what Paul is talking about is how we live out unity in a godly way. In fact, this has been really what he's been talking about this whole time. In one sense, church unity involves the essential equality of all believers along with a diversity of gifts among those believers. All are gifted, but not all are gifted in the same way or to the same degree. And yet, we are all members of one body. This is one of the wonders of church unity. We all are gifted, but not in the same way. It's not the same degree. And yet, we are still one body. And so, how has Christ chosen to gift the various members of the church? Well, our passage tells us that he has given grace according to the measure of his gift. Which is to say, Christ has chosen to give gifts to his people in the measure that he sees fit and to the degree that he sees fit. It's not like um, the process of splitting up that last piece of chocolate cake among children. You know, you've all done this, haven't you? Where every single piece needs to be fair and equal. They got more than I did. No, no, it's even. No, they got more. It's not like that. The Lord gives according to His measure in greater or lesser portions as He sees fit. Which is to say, the Christian is gifted differently. Every Christian is gifted differently. Some in large portion, other in smaller portions. But the diversity of gifts does not do violence to the unity of the body, but in fact adds to it greatly. It enhances the unity, or it ought to enhance the unity. Now, how? If there's unity, shouldn't there be total equality, like that piece of cake that the kids all want, you know, split evenly? Shouldn't it be like that? Well, the Christian is not like a mass-produced widget. We're not drones. We're unique. Consider for a moment the metaphor of the body which Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. There are some parts of the body which are hands. There are some parts of the body which are eyes, feet, And on and on and on. Various parts of the body. But no part, whether greater or lesser, should say that they don't belong to the body. All parts play a role in the body. Your gift, which has been graciously given to you by Christ, your Savior, is the function Christ has given to you. Christ has made you as you are. He's gifted you. As you are, as he wanted to do. As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians, if all were a single member, where where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And you can think of ridiculous things like, what if the whole body was made up of nothing but eyeballs, right? It's not going to work. 
Everyone in the church of Jesus Christ has their role and their gift, and in this sense, equal honor in that. The unity of the body of Christ does not mean that we're all the same. It is not that we're one one member, but we're many members, just as an organism has a diversity of parts which make up the whole. In the church, every believer in Jesus Christ has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this is a blessing to us. Now the grace that is being talked about here isn't the grace of salvation. It is rather the grace of blessedness. This is Christ blessing us as He sees fit. It is the inward spiritual gift, the influence, function, even office as the case may be, flowing from that blessing. Gifts are given by grace, and Christ Himself is the gracious gift giver. What is given internally by the Spirit then flows externally in its use of service to the body. And Christ Himself is the source from which these gifts flow. He is the sovereign distributor of these gifts. To illustrate the point that Christ is the source and distributor of the gifts, Paul actually quotes, interestingly enough, from Psalm 68, when he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, as we talk about gifts, that seems sort of Odd, in a way, that he's quoting from Psalm 68. Because the psalmist pictures the Lord as victorious over his enemies. He's defeated all of his enemies, and he's now ascending the mountain, and he's leading captives. And the picture, then, is Christ is the victorious one. Who, has, who triumphantly ascends, leading captives. Now, who are the captives? These captives are the spoils of war. Christ has gained a great victory over the forces of evil by his death and resurrection. Now, normally when you have a king who is now defeated uh, of the enemy, you would have tributes coming in, Right? from those who are under the king. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Christ begins to give tribute. He begins to give gifts. So instead of receiving the gifts of tribute from the men of the world who have been freed by this great victory over the forces of evil, Christ, who is the conquering king, comes bearing gifts according to his measure. This is actually quite astounding. And you really consider it that way. When the King of Kings came, he brought a variety of gifts to give to his now freed people. And we will see in a moment the principal gifts which the King gives for his bride, the church. And so the one who is ascending the mountain in victory, this is Christ. He's also the one who descended into the lower regions. This, of course, is making Paul's point more clear. In order to to win the victory, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, had to descend 
This speaks of His humiliation, His incarnation, His taking on human flesh, His suffering in this life, His death on the cross, and finally, His burial in the tomb. This is His descent, the humiliation of being born. His ascent then begins at the resurrection when He rose again from the dead after three days from the grave. And it is at the empty tomb that He finally and completely has defeated sin and death. And that ascent, of course, continues in the ascension where He goes. He is taken into heaven after 40 days and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so Paul is describing the wonderful truth that Christ came, He took on flesh, He shared in our infirmities, He suffered yet without sin, He took upon Himself the penalty for sin, and He was victorious over that. And He lives and reigns forevermore at the right hand of the Father as all of His enemies are made a footstool under His feet. And in the process... He gives gifts to his bride. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heaven that he might fill all things. Beloved, this is the one who's bearing gifts. The conquering king is the one who's bearing gifts. And what is it he brings? What is principally Paul's point? What is this gift that is being brought? Well, in fact... What he brings is a gift for all believers, but more specifically, he brings church officers. Look at verse 11. It says, And he gave, what does he bring? He's, He's giving the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. So the Savior who descended in humility and ascended in victory has given to the church, church officers, church leaders. And to be even more specific, he's actually speaking about elders, ministers. These are the instruments by which Christ exercises his authority. Now there are five specific positions which are listed. And they're listed in in an order of importance. The first two offices listed are offices which have passed away after the first generation. And the last three continue on until the return of Jesus. And so the first listed here in verse 11 are the apostles. The the apostles. These are the messengers of Christ. Literally the sent ones. The apostles were those who had been specifically appointed by Christ to be his official representatives. To be an apostle, one had to be directly appointed by Christ himself, a witness to his resurrection, and have a knowledge of the gospel by special revelation from God. These qualifications are what constituted this special office of apostle and were essential to its authority. Without these gifts, without this uh, qualification, those who claimed this office were then false apostles. And there were many of those running around the early church and really running around today. Now, the office of apostle or we should say the special office of apostle, passed away after that first generation 
of believers, as there was no one after that who witnessed the resurrected, resurrected Christ. You didn't have people who had seen Jesus, who had been risen from the dead. You didn't have those who had been personally instructed by Jesus. Now, second listed is the office of prophet. Now, a prophet is one who speaks for another. A spokesman, like Aaron was for Moses, like Moses was for God. The prophets were those who God had called to speak for him to men by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are prophets. Now, the prophets of the New Testament period differed from the apostles in that their inspiration was occasional and their authority as teachers was subordinate to them. An example of this might be um, Agabus in Acts chapter 11 and verse 28. However, as the gospel spread, uh, there was now no need for new revelation, and so that office ceased as well in the first generation. The third on the list are evangelists. Evangelists. Again, these are the gifts which Christ has given. Now those who serve as evangelists were often uh, itinerant preachers. They were sent as missionaries to preach the gospel, to establish churches, with a particular emphasis on areas where the gospel had not previously been known. Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 was exhorted to do the work of an evangelist. Philip in Acts 21 was referred to as Philip the Evangelist. So the evangelist is one who has been called to make the gospel known in new places and to help establish new churches in these places as Timothy was exhorted by Paul to set things in order. The fourth on our list are shepherds. If the evangelist is making disciples, making new disciples of all the nations by evangelism, this is one who disciples existing believers. This describes the work, really, of the pastor of a local congregation. When new believers are incorporated into the church, they need to be cared for, they need to be nurtured, they need to be disciplined. This is all part of discipleship. This is the task of the shepherd. Now the final position listed here is that of teacher. The teacher of the word does exactly as we might think he teaches. He interprets the scriptures. He instructs the body so that they grow in their knowledge of the word. Now, John Calvin was of the opinion that this was a distinct office from that of pastor or evangelist. He thought that the teacher, quote, had nothing to do with discipline, nor with the administration of the sacraments, nor with the admonition or exhortations, but simply with the interpretation of scriptures, end quote. Now, in response to this, Charles Hodge, who was a, a professor at Princeton Seminary uh, in, the, in the 19th century, late 19th century, commented this. He said, quote, There is no evidence from Scripture that there is a set of men who are authorized to teach but not exhort. The thing, Hodge said, is well nigh impossible. Which is to say that one who teaches necessarily exhorts. I think Hodge is right on that. And so what we have here, though, is a list 
these five really are talking about the office of elders, those who minister the gospel. The first two listed are aspects that uh, have passed away, that of apostle and prophets. These were special offices which went away after the first generation of believers. But they did the function of the last three. They were also evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And the last three are all aspects of what we might today call ministers, pastors, teaching elders. These three terms all refer to different different gifts within the same office. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are not separate offices, but rather they are varying functions within the same office of minister of the gospel. What Paul is saying is that God gives gifts. He gives to the church ministers, and then he gives those ministers for the tasks that they're to have in these, these different ways. In fact, this is how our, the Book of Church Order and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church understands these. Gospel ministers are called into one of three types of ministries. Evangelists, uh, these are church planters and missionaries. Shepherds, these are our local uh, pastors of, of established churches. And teachers, who have special, the special privilege of teaching the word, uh, perhaps in a seminary, a Bible college, or other uh, Christian education endeavors. So all three, though all called ministers of the word and sacrament, uh, just as all five of these offices would be called elders, their distinction has only to do with their differing emphasis, depending on the call. Because there is a sense in which all ministers are evangelists, all ministers are shepherds, and all ministers are teachers. Just as they're each vary in degree depending on their call and on the man. Because Christ has gifted them differently. And so what is the gift with, with, with which the victorious king, the, the conquering king, as he ascends the mountain, what is the gift he has brought to the church? He's brought those who minister the word to you. This is the gift Jesus gave to you. He has given ministers who evangelize, who disciple, who teach. And by the way, isn't this, isn't this implied in Christ's great commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end. Jesus said he'd be there with us always to the end, and he's provided the means of that. He's gifted the church in this way. Evangelizing, discipling, shepherding, teaching. These are the gifts Christ has given. And to what purpose? What's the reason that he has given this as the gift to the church? Well, look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ... You see, the elders and overseers of the church are given for the equipping of the body. They're for you, to equip you. Now, interestingly enough, the word equip is actually a medical term. It refers to the setting of a bone. In context, it describes the act by which people are properly conditioned or or mended. 
So equipping then involves mending, correcting, setting things in order, helping the body heal and flourish. So when a Christian is taught good doctrine, when they are corrected, when they are disciplined in the Word of God, then they're being prepared for a purpose, which is the work of ministry and the edification of the church. You see, pastors and elders provide the necessary equipping needed for the saints to accomplish the task of their own personal ministering to one another and to the world. So that you are prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. See, it's not only the elders who are engaged in spiritual labor. It is the whole body of Christ. Together, in unity. Because you hold the general office of believer, a member of the household of God. And this necessarily means that you are engaged in the advancement of God's kingdom and the edification of His church. Which is another way of saying this. There are no simple observers within the body. We, we talked about this during Sunday school. Um, you know, we're actively participating in worship. We're actively participating in life of the church. Christ did not give us gifts, in particular gifts which equip us, so that we could just sit back and watch from the sidelines. Like, oh yeah, you guys are doing a great job. This is wonderful. All the body are participating. One commentator put it this way. He said, there is no room in Christ's church for drones, only for busy bees. Your pastors and elders are not simply labor. That's why we, that's why we hired them, right? They are your equippers, they are your shepherds, they are your teachers. And this is the gift which Christ has given and continues to give. Generation after generation as new disciples are made and and new men are raised up and trained and then take the place of the previous generation of elders and ministers. And this goes on and on until Christ returns. And the purpose of all this, verse 13, is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. So the ministry of the church is not an unnecessarily insti- unnecessary institution. You know, some people say, well, you know, the church is just this man-made thing, and you know, I, all I need is my Bible and Jesus, and I'll be good. It's not the way Christ designed it. It's not unnecessary. The ministry of the church is to continue and be engaged in by all until the church has reached the goal of its high calling, which is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Christ. Perfect maturity in the Christian faith and growing up into the fullness of Christ. In a nutshell, it's our spiritual maturity. It's growing in godliness. Unity around the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is, this is the purpose. And so Paul again is, is he's still touching on this, our main theme, which is unity through personal holiness. And when we consider verse 13 in light of the overall context, we see what Paul is exhorting. 
it is clear that it is the entire church, not just the elders, not just deacons, not just the pastors, but all of the members of the household of God are, who are to be faithful to their calling, to render service to the body, to build up the body of Christ. Christ has given gifts And it is especially the elders who help equip us for the task which Christ has given for us. Another way of saying it is this. We are united in Christ as one body, and our service to one another is a perfecting of that unity. We're to live out the reality of the unity which we enjoy in Christ, in our faith, in our conduct. And when we do... We are united through the spiritual work of the church. And so this has some very real practical value. As as we're uh, equipped, as we're corrected, as we're exhorted through the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, and we are built up and mature in the faith. And remember, we're a body, we're helping one another, we're serving one another. This is so that, verse 14, look, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. While the maturity of the body of Christ has been in view throughout, there is an obligation which has been placed on the individual member of the body. We're to grow in our faith. We're to grow in our, in our personal conduct so that we would become mature. So that we wouldn't be like children who are tossed to and fro. That the Christian is to grow up in Christ. To become an adult in Christ. Because the, the opposite of achieving maturity is to remain a child. And when it comes to the storms of life... When the attacks come to your faith, if you're immature, and when you're like a child who cannot steer the ship, but you'll in fact be tossed to and fro. The immature Christian cannot handle the attacks that the world brings. They're not equipped to do so, just as children aren't equipped to to steer a ship. They haven't been properly trained. They, They don't know what to do. So it is with those who are immature in the faith as children. And so there's a real design and purpose to this gospel ministry. So that the Christian would be rooted and grounded in the word of God. So that he or she might be taught, would grow, would mature, and not be easily led astray. Because you know, children, children are easily deceived. And so are the spiritually immature. The spiritually immature easily fall prey to the schemes of false teachers who deceive and are themselves deceived. Instead of the schemes and lies of the false teacher, the body of Christ, again, there's a, there's a, a design to all this, the body of Christ is to speak the truth in love. So what Paul is doing is condemning all instability in the faith which is brought about by false teachers. But when the false teachers come, we don't fight their lies with more lies. We don't fight it with hatred. 
We fight with the truth in love. In fact, our speaking the truth in love to one another is what helps to root and ground us in the gospel. And again, notice, this is not just naked truth-telling. Speaking the truth in love. And so the truth that we are to speak, and the truth which is contemplated here, is God's truth. This is the truth we're speaking. The truth of the gospel. We're reminding one another of the gospel. We're not only to speak the truth of the gospel to one another, but we're also to do so lovingly. Truth and love together are what the body of Christ is to live out so that we may grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. See, the growth of the body of Christ is to be in proportion to the head, which is Christ our Lord. And so here again is an emphasis on the intimacy and unity which exists within the body of Christ, the church. The church grows in her union together with her Lord. We're to help one another grow in our faith. And we do that when we speak the truth. And we can only do that when we've been properly equipped, right? When we have, when we have our own rough edges knocked off. When, we're, when we've been discipled by the, the Word. When we've been disciplined. Then we can be useful towards our fellow believers in speaking the gospel and love to them, which then helps them grow. This is the design of the church, right? We're to grow in Christ because it is in Christ, verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working together, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, ultimately it is Christ who is the head, who is nourishing and teaching and admonishing and disciplining His church. It is He who is exercising His authority through His chosen instruments within the body, And when all the body is working together, when all the parts are working together, that body grows and builds itself in love. This is the way the body is supposed to work. And so in that that sense, every part of the body needs to be doing what it was designed to do. For God has designed each of us for certain functions in the life of the body. But here's the question. What happens when we don't fulfill what we're called to? Consider for a moment what happens if a part of your body stops functioning as it ought to. It's pretty regular um, in, in times of fellowship that we talk about the aches and pains we have, right? Dr. Horseman has to hear a lot of those, right? Oh, that kind of hurts here. You know, if, if one of your, let's say, one of your ligaments in your leg stopped working, or wasn't working properly, you're in pain. Your, your leg may be weak. You might not even be able to walk. You may require surgery to repair what is damaged. When a part of the body stops functioning or is not working properly, then the whole body suffers. So it is in the life of the church. 
when the body is not working together, when it's not uh, expressing the truth in love, then growth is stunted. The body will hurt. There may be damage which needs to be repaired. Everyone in the body will be affected. Everyone. The body will be weakened. The body will suffer great pain. This is why being equipped in the Word is so vital. Hence the gift Christ has given. Beloved, Paul is exhorting us that we derive our life both as individuals and as a body from Christ. And our health in the body comes from all of the parts of his body working properly together. This is how the church is designed. The church was designed by Jesus for a purpose. The church isn't just some afterthought or just some extra thing that we could do. In other words, when we all serve and we all participate in the life of the church, then all will benefit, including ourselves. When one part of the body, though, isn't functioning properly, maybe there's sin, maybe there's pain, whatever it might be, then we all suffer. And this is where we, we come beside one another, right? This is, again, this is the design of the church. This is how we heal and mend together the church. And so what is true for our physical bodies is also true for us as a church. Each of us functions best in union with Christ and with one another. And the bond that unites us is the bond of love. The love of Christ which constrains us so that only by love can the body be built up into His stature. Well, I hope you see that Christ has given marvelous gifts to His bride, the church. Because he loves, his, he loves His body. And as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have been given a gift by His grace. He has gifted you, He has gifted me, in different measures, in different ways. But He has gifted each of us. Some of us have been blessed with great talents, others with less. What are you doing with yours? How are you using it to serve the body? Now you might say, I don't know what my gift is. Well, what do you like? What are you good at? How can your interests and talents be used to help serve others? The answer to these questions may lead you to ways you can serve Christ and His body. There's not... Part of this is to say this. It's not one, a one, you know, one-size-fits-all answer to this question. You know you, and you know how Christ has made you. I imagine, though, that many of us do know what we're good at, what we enjoy. And perhaps you've never really considered before how it could be used to serve others. Maybe you look at others around you and think, well, what can I offer? What can I do? You remember my multi-talented friend that I spoke of earlier? Even he had weaknesses. It took me a while to figure out what they were, but he had weaknesses too. And the Lord used the body of Christ around him to build him up in the areas he needed help. 
you have something to offer the body. Even if you think it's little, you might be doing much. God has given you interests, talents, a mind which functions in a particular way. God has designed you to be you. And this is good. So use the gifts that God has given you. Use them for the good of His people. Use them for the body. Use them to the glory of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Let each of us be good stewards of God's varied gifts, His gracious blessings which He has given to you. May you be a blessing to others as He has blessed you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the gifts that you have given to the church. The gifts of gospel ministers, those who have come before us, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. We thank you, God, for how you have gifted the church through the proclamation of your word. The great benefit we still realize from those who've come. And we thank you also for the ways in which this body has been gifted. The way this body serves one another and is continuing to serve. We pray, God, that you would continue to be pleased to keep this body united. May we be a people who serve one another, who speak the truth in love to one another, that we may mature in, your, in the faith, that we would not be as children tossed to and fro, but we would grow into the stature of our Savior, even Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Him who reigns forever and ever, Jesus our Lord. Amen.